what we have seen in our, in our study of the book of Esther is faith in action. And it's interesting because if you've been with us studying this, you know that, that the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But throughout the book, you see God's fingerprints and you see God's hand upon this whole thing. And so you, you, you see that they're stepping out in faith, whether he's mentioned or not. And I've mentioned several times, that, and I like this in the sense that even though these people... Esther and Mordecai did not have that Jewish feel to them. If anything, they were kind of going with society, the Persian society, to where people didn't even know that they were Jewish. God was still working. God was still at, at work ministering to them and, and, and would use them regardless whether they were seeking his face or not. And I just find that fascinating that oftentimes we feel like we have to manufacture things, we have to be a certain way. And, and again, we are called Christian. But whether you act like a good Christian or not, God is still working. God is always doing something. And, and I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they were talking how, how, just how much they blow it. And it's like, well, we all blow it. You know, but, but, but there's almost like this standard that Christians don't blow it. No, we blow it every day. And that's what makes it amazing that he still loves me. And he does, you know, stuff in my life. So whether, and I want to seek him, and I want to do what's right, and I want to do everything I possibly can to do what's right, but I also know that it's up to him and not up to me in the end. I, I want to do what I've been called to do, and I want to be faithful in doing that. So anyway, so we've been seeing the faith uh, of Esther in action. And as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, um, or a few weeks ago, uh, when, when we saw the fasting that was going on, um, and, and fasting is good, you know, and, and we see that in this book that they fasted. But what good is fasting if it doesn't move you to action. It's just a diet <laughs> if it does nothing else for you. And what we see with these people that as they began to focus, um, put their focus on God, then he gave them focus to do what they were being called to do. And so again, if we want to draw close to God, the Bible says he will draw close to us. If we draw near, he draws near as well. And so if we put our focus on him, then he gives us focus in what we're supposed to be doing. If we acknowledge him in all our ways, the Bible says, then he will direct our path. And that's a guarantee. If we do that, then he does that because he's faithful and he is always faithful. And what we got to see with Esther is that when she put her faith in action, all of a sudden, things began to happen. And as we know, there was a three-day fast. And, and, and on that third day of that fast, while everybody else is fasting, she prepares a banquet, and she puts on her royal robe, and she, she does all that she's supposed to do to put all that she has been learning or focusing on in, in action. And she goes and stands before the king, and she basically puts her life on the line. And sometimes that's what faith asks us to do, to put feet to our faith. 
to start walking, to step out. Because we can pray all day long, Lord, use me, use me, use me. But if you just sit there and never like put your foot out there or put yourself in, in the place where you can be used, then what good is it if you're praying, Lord, use me, and then the opportunity arises like, oh, I can't do that, you know? And so what we see with Esther is that when she was fasting, as she was focusing, God showed her what she was supposed to do, and she did it. She put feet to her faith. And she put her, her life on the line so much so that she tells the rest of the people, I'll go do what I'm being asked to do, and if I perish, I perish. So much so that, that again, she, she did not even count her life dear to her in what God was showing her to do. Now, it was not a matter of what she was doing, but the fact that God was already working on her behalf. Oh, he needed her to move, but he had already gone before her. And that's what I find fascinating. And, and hopefully you see this in your life. When you put your foot out there to step out, you're, you're going to find that God has already gone before you to do the work and to prepare the path because that's who he is. And we see and we saw the sovereignty of God in that and the providential care of God already at work. In other words, God had already gone before them, but they needed to take action. And that's an encouragement for us. Um, the turn of events that we have seen in the last couple of studies has been truly amazing. From the time that they started their three-day fast and that everything turned was four days. Three days of fasting and on the next day everything changed. Now, it would be amazing if that's the way God worked all the time, wouldn't it? <laughs> that was like, okay, Lord, I am going to start seeking you and I know that in four days everything's going to turn around for my benefit. That would be amazing. But that doesn't always happen that way. And I'm not saying, hey, fast, and in four days you see the, the major results. That's not what I'm saying. God works at his timing, but he needed them in the place of seeking his face so that when he showed them what to do, they were ready to go for it. Um, and so he gave them the, the, the understanding. And he always does that as we seek him. And so we start seeing the work of God unfold. And so we're in chapter 9. Let's read the first four verses here. It says, Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirtieth uh, day, the, first, uh, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the providence of King Ahasuerus and laid hands on those who sought them harm. And no one could withstand them, because fear of them fell upon all the people. And all the officials of the provinces, provinces, uh, provinces um, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews 
because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the province. Uh, for this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. So as I shared with you last week, the first decree that had come from Haman happened on April 17th, 747, no, 474, it's my dyslexia kicking in, 474 B.C., So in 474 B.C., on April 17th, Haman had this idea that he would go to the king because he couldn't stand Mordecai to be able to make a decree that on on a particular day, all the Jews would be killed throughout all the provinces of the Persian Empire. Now, there was 127 provinces. It is estimated that in the whole province, there was probably 100 million people at least 15 million, million of them were Jews. And so on that day that that first decree was given was April 17th, 474 B.C. It was about 70 days later after he made that proclamation or that decree before Haman himself gets killed because he can't stand Mordecai. And this is where things begin to take a turn. All of a sudden, things are beginning to change. Mordecai takes over where Haman leaves off. And so that's what we're looking at last week, that when Mordecai now comes into favor with the king in this realm, the king tells him, hey, I know that there's, or they come to him saying, hey, we're, even though Mordecai or, or Haman is dead, the, the law that he has put into place is still very much alive. And we have probably eight to nine months before annihilation hits, before D-Day, you would say. And so the king tells him, well, why don't you, now that you're in charge, you have taken his place, why don't you write your own decree to help the Jews? So on June 25th, 474 B.C., Mordecai writes his own, his, his own decree. So they have eight to nine months before D-Day. And that D-Day, that, that, that day that they're supposed to uh, see destruction, would be March 7, 473 B.C. And it would be open game on the, on the Jews throughout all the land of Persia. So this chapter here that we are looking at, verse 1, where it tells us now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th, uh, uh, 13th, 13th day, I said 30th earlier, 13th day, it came to pass. So March 7, 473 has now come. And now all of a sudden, it's about time for all these guys to get killed. The Bible tells us that in a few, cha- a few chapters earlier that when he, Haman had made that decree, it was to destroy, kill, and annihilate every one of the Jews on March 7. And so Mordecai, we looked at last week, makes a proclamation that on March 7th, <laughs> there would be another 
decree. And this is what I find fascinating because it says that the enemies of the Jews, they hoped to overpower them, the Jews. And so what I find fascinating is that the, the king allows two decrees to be written in his name. One gives permission for the Jews to be killed, and the other one gives permission for the Jews to defend themselves. <laughs> and so either way, on March 7th of that year, when it rolled around, it was going to get ugly. People were going to die because, because the, the, the people from Persia wanted to kill the Jews, and yet now there's this new decree that, hey, you can go and defend yourself. You don't have to let them kill you which I find fascinating that before that decree was, was in place, the Jews could have no repercussion against these people coming after them. They had nothing to fight them with. And it wasn't like they were going to be fight, fighting the army. They were going to be fighting their neighbors. It was going to be kind of the civil war that was going to happen, this, this, this annihilation of the Jews. And it's interesting because... When these laws were put into place, the first one, when the order went out to kill all the Jews, it says in chapter 3, verse 15, that the city of Shushan, the capital city, and the people were perplexed, thinking, why would the king allow this? Why would he allow people to just kill people just because they're Jewish? But that was the law that Haman had put in place, and he was the second in command, and the king let him do it, never telling them that it was the Jews themselves. And so it tells us that the city and the people were perplexed. And what we learned last week was when Mordecai made that second order, that now they can defend themselves, it says that the city of Shushan and the people rejoiced and were glad. Because it's almost like, oh good, there, there doesn't have to be all this bloodshed and all this hurt. Now, I'm sure that the word got out about what had happened to Haman. Again, here is the prime minister of all the, the provinces, of all the empire, and he gets killed because, because again, he... he he had made this rule, but that's not why he got killed. It's because he tried, or it looked like the king, the king came in and looked, hey, man, you're going to go after my wife here. That's basically why he killed them. But he has them killed, and he has them um, hung or impaled on a gallows. And so I'm sure everybody knew what had happened to Haman. And I'm sure everybody knew that now Mordecai was put in his place. So you would think that all the people who heard all this news would maybe somehow understand that a, this, the second law that has come out meant, guys, let's not kill anybody. Let, 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 let's not hurt anybody. Let's not hurt the Jews. Those, those of you who hate the Jews, who want to go after the Jews, you don't have to do that anymore because this other law says that these guys can now protect themselves. So you would think that as this law went out, the people are going, well, what side am I on? But you see, there was people that still hated the Jews that were going to go for it anyways, thinking we're at, we outnumber them regardless. So if I want to kill a Jew because the law says I can, then I will do that. It's just kind of interesting. 
because we're going to see that people still desire to do that. It says, but the enemies of the Jews still thought that it was a good idea on that particular day to go out and kill the Jews. But it tells us in verse 1, the opposite occurred. The opposite. In other words, everything got turned around. And instead of overpowering and dominating the Jews, they themselves were overpowered and dominated by the Jews. So many of the people that, that were involved in this whole Persian empire they didn't want to kill the Jews, and yet there's a, there's a law that says you can't, and so they couldn't stop it. But now that this other law came in, it told us at the end of the chapter that we read last week that many, then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them, and they, they felt like, no, we're with these, these guys. So there was no need to go after them after all. But the, 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 the enemies of the Jews had so much hatred towards these guys that even though they must have known that there would be a lot less people on their side, they were still going to go for it and try and kill these Jews. And so as they go out, thinking they're going to overpower them, they themselves get overpowered. And it is because, verse 2 tells us, that the Jews gathered together in every city throughout all the provinces of the king. These guys had come together and said, we're going we're gonna to fight against them. Now, understand, with this new law that went out, they weren't supposed to be the aggressors. They were only to defend themselves at whoever came at them. And it tells us that they were allowed to protect themselves and they would only fight or lay hands on those who sought them harm. Like I said earlier, the Jews would be outnumbered for sure. But God was on their side. <laughs> and that made them stronger than anything else. If, if God is for us, the Bible says, who can be against us? So if the whole world is against you, poor little you, if the whole world is against you, but you are a child of God, they can't do anything to you unless the Lord allows it to happen. And he will fight for you and he will be on your side. And even though they, they destroy your body, they cannot destroy your soul. So if, if God is on our side, then we are a majority, even though we're smaller. And this is what we see with the nation of Israel throughout their history. They were never big. They were never huge. They were never popular. God, as a matter of fact, chose them because they were nothing. To show himself strong in people's lives. And the Bible says us, as Christians, that we are like nothing compared to the world. He has chosen the foolish to confound the wise, the weak, to, to, to confound the, the strong. We are in that place. And yet, because we are in that place, God is on our side, and he goes before us. And even though the Satan can come against us, even though the world can come against us, even though everything is against us, God is still on our side. And in the end, we are victors. 
In the end, these guys, we see something more physical than we do on the spiritual end with us. We see these guys who were outnumbered by, by the, the, the population, and yet many of the people were now coming to their defense so much so that when these guys decided on that particular day to go kill them, that none, no one could withstand them, it says. At the end of verse 2, they laid hands on those who sought them harm, and no one could withstand them. Now, I, I know... And I understand that in many instances, the Lord would allow the nation of Israel to lose battles. And it wasn't that he wasn't on their side. Normally, when they lost battles, it was, it was to teach them lessons because of their disobedience. God allows things in our lives that we feel like we're defeated and God's going, I have to teach you this lesson. You're going to win in the end. But what you have to go through right now is for your benefit and for your good. Because again, when we're looking at the whole story, a lot of these people or their ancestors or their forefathers had been taken captive from Jerusalem up to Babylon. The Persians take over the Babylonian people, and now they're still captive, so to speak. They have freedom to go back home, but they decided to stay. And normally, when, when, when we are disobedient, God allows the consequences to come, but it does not mean that God is not on your side. He is always on your side. He is always for you. But the lessons that we have to learn because of what we do, then he will allow to happen. But when God is on the battlefield, no one can withstand his people says, because fear of them, the Jews, fell on all the people. It's interesting because the Lord had given the Jews a greater weapon than swords, and that was fear. Not that they had the fear, but he put the fear in other people. So much so that they respected the Jews and they came alongside of them. And it's almost like because of this fear, this respect, this reverence for these people, that there was Gentile people that were coming and helping them fight against those who sought them harm. And you would have to say that so many lives would, would be saved because of this second law. And because other people decided to help the Jews. So many people's lives were, were saved. Because 15 million people were on the brink of extermination. And yet it was averted because God had put Esther in place. Because God had put Mordecai in place. Because there was a guy who, who when the king couldn't sleep and brought out the records, brought out the perfect book to remind the king, hey, five years ago, Mordecai saved your life. And all these things started happening. And the ball is rolling. And God has just put everything into place. So much so that 15 million people don't have to get killed in this situation. And there was fear that fell upon the regular people that said, we're with the Jews. We're going to help them. Again, there was this, this favor that was found by the, uh, by the people. And it's interesting because 
before they went into captivity, the prophet Jeremiah had, had told the people, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. When you get there, don't be a nuisance, he says. Don't fight against where I've sent you. Allow things to happen, but you live in peace. You're not the one to be the troublemaker. You're the, you're the one to be the peacemaker. And even though they were peacemakers, they hadn't done anything against the king or the kingdom except for Mordecai not bowing down to Haman. Because of that, Haman wants to kill and annihilate all the Jews. Most of these Jews, Jews obeyed the law or obeyed what God had told them by the prophet Jeremiah. And they lived in peace where they were at. Peter, the apostle, tells us in his, in his word that we are to be good citizens wherever we're at. doesn't matter in this country, the next country, wherever you find yourself, you are to be in peace and live in peace with those around you. As much as is within you, the Bible says, live peaceably with all men. The people of the land understood that the Jewish people were an asset to the land and not a liability. The fact that 15 million people would be killed would devastate the economy of the Persian, the Persian economy. And that is one of those issues that Haman, when he wanted to kill people, says, I'll take care of the finances there. And there was nothing that Queen Esther said. There was no way that he could make up for the loss of all these people. And so it all turned against them. And then verse 3, it says all the officials of the provinces and, and the satraps, all these people, these, these officials, the, the people that were involved in this whole thing, they all came and, and helped in the victory that, that the Jewish people were having. In every aspect of it, they helped in the victory. And it tells us that the people feared Mordecai as well. All, all, these, all these officials that were involved, that were coming alongside of them to help them, throughout the, the empire, they saw Mordecai in such a way that they, they defended him and they honored him. The way he conducted himself, different than what Haman was. Haman was this prideful, arrogant fool where you have Mordecai, who is more on the humble side, doing what was right for the people. Here you have a Jew who is ne next in line, in, uh, second in command to a Persian king, and yet he is doing what is good for the whole of the people. And God had given Mordecai this, heart, this high position, this great reputation. And Mordecai used that authority for the benefit of the people, not so much for him. As we saw that Mordecai, or Haman, it, 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 everything was pointed towards him. And whereas we see Mordecai was more for the people. And so in verse 5 it says, Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction and did as they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, 
also these 10 names that are named here, verse 10, are the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hanadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. Verse 12, the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done uh, in the rest of the province, in the provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther says, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. But they did not lay hand, a hand on the plunder. The Jews did what they were supposed to do. It sounds almost as if they took advantage of the situation because it says in, in, in verse 5 at the end there, and did as they pleased with those who hated them. They really did not take advantage of the situation. In, in another translation, it says that they did what was acceptable. They did what was accepted to protect themselves. It's not like they had fun having to kill these people who hated them. But they did what they were supposed to do. A total of 810 men just in the city of Shushan were killed in those two days. Ten of those men were the sons of Haman who were killed in Shushan. Now, most of these guys, if not all of the 800 men, I'll put the the sons aside, they were probably loyal to Haman one way or another. Either they worked for him, there was a prophet coming in for them, and they thought, man, you've just ruined all our livelihood because you've killed this man. But for eight, nine months, they have had this disdain for the Jewish people. Now, it doesn't tell us how many people were in Shushan, in the, in, the, in the capital, but 800 men plus the 10 sons of Haman were killed. Again, these guys had every opportunity to say, you know what, I hate these guys, but I'm not going to kill them. I, I, the, the, the other law came out going, man, they get to fight back against us. Maybe we should just call it quits. Maybe let's just squash the situation and let's not go for it. But they didn't. They decided to to go for it. And these men would end up dying, even though they didn't have to 
get into this fight. They must have been loyal to Haman. Why else would they go against the Jews and Mordecai? Mordecai had now built this reputation for himself that was good for the people, and yet they still went against them. Now, for whatever reason, Queen Esther thought that it was best to take it another day, and you would be going like, wait a minute here. She just wants some revenge here. And it almost seems like that, but perhaps because it was the capital city and that is where, where Haman was, it is quite possible that she thought, you know, there's probably some hangarounds here and we should take another sweep and find out who really wants to fight and hate the Jews. And, and, and even though it's not revenge, I believe it's wisdom. Because again, if these people were still there, they would look for a way to somehow take over later on. And so here they go again, and they take another 300 men. And then it says about the 10 sons of Haman. They had already been killed in, in that they, they came against the Jews. But now she says, that when, he, when he asked, what else do you want? So, well, let's just hang these guys already, you know, also. I mean, they're already dead. It's not like it's going to hurt them. They're already dead. But again, we're talking about impaling them from the backside up. And so they're going to put them up there. Uh, and again, you're thinking, it looks like revenge. But it wasn't an uncommon practice in those days and in, those, in that regime to, to kind of do this to even the dead bodies so that other people would not commit the same kind of sin or crime that those who had been killed uh, and punished. And so the sons of Haman, they could have lived. They had every opportunity to continue to live in that, in that environment. But they decided to go after the the Jews, because again, the Jews were not going to go after them because they weren't allowed to be the aggressors. So the ten sons of Haman were aggressors, and they ended up being killed. They probably had the same kind of hatred towards the Jews that his father had. But listen to, to how twice, and we'll hear it one more time, it tells us that they did not, in verse 10, they did not lay hand, a hand on the plunder. And in verse 15, I think it was, uh, it says that they did not lay hand on the, plun, uh, on the plunder. And we'll see that one more time in verse 16. So three times we are told that the Jews had every opportunity to do that, but they didn't. It was the taking of the spoil, the, splun, the, the, the plunder, that, that King Saul back in the day with the Amalekites was not supposed to do any of that. And he says, hey, don't take anything. Just kill them all. And yet he did not obey the Lord and he took some of the plunder. Well, it's almost as if the Jews said, well, we won't make that mistake again. We don't need their wealth. This is not about taking wealth. This is about protecting our families. They only wanted to protect themselves and to vindicate their, themselves and live in an empire that they could live freely in. And so the Jews only killed those who attacked them first, and they were not the aggressors. 
but it tells us in verse 16, and the remainder of the Jews and the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not plunder or they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day of the month, they rested and made it a great and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th day, and on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews <clears throat> of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. So the Jews in the other parts of the region or in total killed 75,000 men in one day. That's pretty gnarly. But again, we're looking at a province that has, or, or, or a, a kingdom that has 127 provinces, and it spans from what we know as Pakistan today all the way across through Turkey, down south, all the way to Ethiopia. So it's a, a big old portion of land, and like I shared, it's estimated that there was, um, there was 100 million people living in all of the provinces. 15 million of them were Jews. So 75,000 is not that bad. And I know you're going, no, it's lives. And it's like, I understand. But it could have gotten worse. And none of those 75,000 men had to die. All they had to say is, we're not going to attack the Jews because nobody would have attacked them. But the 75,000 men decided they hated the Jews that much that they would put their lives on the line to go do this. It averages out to about 600 men per province. Again, the Jews were greatly outnumbered in the empire. And their victory has to be attributed to the fact that their faith and their courage in God is what sustained them. Because God was on their side, because God had put fear in other people's lives that they decided not to put themselves in danger. God's hand was all over it. And I'm sure everybody saw it, even those who were not Jewish. It tells us in verse 17 through, through 19 here that only as Shushan did the fighting last two days on the 13th and 14th of that month. And they celebrated on the 15th of the 12th month. Whereas the rest of the empire, they, they, they did all the, this fighting on the 13th and celebrated on the 14th day of the month. 
this holiday and this gladness and this feasting, uh, it turns out to be, as we will look in verse 26, it's called the days of Purim. And the, the word Purim comes from the word pur that we saw earlier in, in the book when Haman cast lots, it was called that they, they, they cast pur. And so they, they call this, this time, this festival, Purim. Now, it is believed, because they still celebrate it today, that it is celebrated in, in two days, always. And the numbers, it doesn't always fall on the same day. It's on different days throughout, you know, every, other, or every year. And on the first day, they usually fast. And on the second day is when it just gets festive. <laughs> and it's almost like a Halloween type of thing to where people dress up, pe- people are giving each other sweets and things like that. And it's almost combined with the Christmas because people give each other gifts and things like that. And it's a very festive holiday. Now, it's interesting because even today, this, the Jews still celebrate it two days, two days a year, and it's usually about a month before Passover. And, and what they do is when they go into the synagogue, they read the book of Esther to remind them why they celebrate Purim. And whenever Haman's name is mentioned in the reading, people usually either shout or they say, cursed be his name, or they hiss every time Haman's name is is named. And every time Mordecai's name is is named, they cheer. Hooray. (laughs) And, And it's so interesting because that goes on even today, in this day and age. They also read, I think on the, on the first day, they read the account of the Amalekites when they attacked Moses in the wilderness. Because that's where this all starts. Because Haman was part of the Amalekites. And so it's pretty interesting that all of this stuff is happening. And when they finally rejoice or feast, there's gladness and joy, and it's a holiday, and they're sending each other presents. And it says in verse 20, it says, And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews, near and far, who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar, as the day on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded 
commanded a letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should uh, return on his own head and that he had his sons and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the writings, the written instructions, and according to the prescribed time, that those these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. And so they have continued with this tradition from 473 B.C. to the present. They continue to do it and they continue to read this portion of Scripture. And I just find that fascinating that they go back and they remember all that the king of Persia had allowed them to do because of Queen Esther and because of Mordecai, because of the providence of God, how he took care of them, how he turned something, that, that this D-Day that was meant for destruction, this D-Day turned into a day of deliverance. And they rejoiced over that. And they had a blast because of that. And so it was written that they should rejoice in these days it, it, they were turned from sorrow to joy from mourning to holiday and again it just kind of reminds me about our lives and the things that happen in our lives that we have gone from sorrow to gladness from 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 mourning to joy that all these things happen in our lives as well and that we should be celebrating because we were we were doomed to destruction <laughs> And yet God sent his son, Jesus, to save us, to deliver us from the, the hell, the destruction that was before us. You see, even like the first law that was set out by Haman, that death should come to the people of God. So when Adam sinned, death came to the people of God. And yet when Mordecai puts this law in order, that first one was still in action, but this one would deliver the people of God. And when Christ came and died on, on the cross for our sins, he, he gave us that other law that we can have eternal life, even though the first law was still in place. And so it's fascinating that God can, can turn our, our sorrow into joy and our mourning into gladness. And verse thir, uh, 29 says, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And Mordecai set, sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the, of the, king, of the kingdom of uh, Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth. 
to confirm these days of Purim at the appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. And just like it's written in our book <laughs> that we have freedom. We have been delivered. We have every opportunity to, to rejoice and have joy in our hearts. I read a quote by Billy Sunday. It says, as Christians, if you don't have joy springing from your life all the time, then you must have a leak in your Christianity. <laughs> because we should be full of joy all the time. Because we have been delivered. Even though the law of death is still in existence, we have the law of Christ in our lives that we get to have eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Father, you are so faithful to us, Lord, in all that you say and all that you do, God. Father, again, Lord God, as we see this book, Lord God, and the story that, that again, the turnaround. And how the enemy wanted to destroy your people, Lord. And yet, because you were on their side, even though they were outnumbered, they could not be overpowered. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room tonight. Father, I don't know what they're battling with. I don't know what's going on in their lives. If it's physical, if it's economical, Lord, what, whatever it is going on in their lives that they just feel being like they're being overpowered by, by, the, by, by Satan or the works of this world or even their own flesh, Lord. But I pray that tonight you would remind them of who you are and your faithfulness, Lord. That, God, you are on our side and that you will give us the victory, Lord God, that this world does not have power over us, but we can have power over this world because of who you are, not because of who we are, Lord. And Father, even as we look through your word here, and we see, Lord God, that all their mourning, all their sorrow was turned in one day. That God, you gave them joy and gladness. You gave, you gave them something to rejoice over, Lord, because they saw your hand in their lives, Lord. Father, we thank you and praise you because you are those things to us, Lord God. You give us joy in the midst of sadness, Lord. You turn things around in our lives, Lord God. Father, when you allow us to go through what we go through, Lord, it's only to strengthen us, and we acknowledge that as well. And so, Lord, go before us tonight. We bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.